everybody, Dave Lindbergh in Hong Kong with yet another episode of THD Podcast. Uh, today, joining us from the Midwest, from Iowa, somewhere near Des Moines, I'm told, is Aaron Johnson. He's the VP of Marketing and Customer Strategy at a company called AccuMold. So today, uh, we're going to find about high-precision molds. Everything in audio and hearables and wearables keeps getting smaller. So how do you inject and mold those parts? I think there was a, a decent history in hearing aids. But now a lot of that technology is transitioning into consumer audio. So we'll find out all about the different aspects of, of, of that business. Uh, but I'll, before we go too far, let's not forget to uh, give a shout out to our sponsor, the Alti, the Audio Loudspeaker Technology International. So there's a trade show coming up. They're very ambitious this year. I keep saying this week after week, but October 24th, 25th in Orlando. Um, we encourage everybody to either join Alti as a member and even better, get out and uh, get involved with that event in October. So without too much delay, let's say hello to our co-host in Japan, Simon. Got a new haircut this week. Sure did, yep. yep. So does, does everything sound better now or how does that work? <laughs> it sounds the same, but it's cooled off a little bit. Uh, okay. Okay, great. So yeah, again, Aaron Johnson, VP of Marketing and Customer Strategy uh, from AccuMold. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Aaron. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Uh, appreciate it. Okay. So yeah, I kind of gave a, a pretty uh, like broad preface there, but I think you guys have a, a large history in hearing aids and some audio devices that are already very small. And we're seeing a trend uh, with, you know, true wireless stereo and other products getting smaller and smaller. So there's obviously some challenges in that in terms of how do you injection mold these size, these, these small precision parts. And so maybe uh, we could start with a bit of a presentation and you can tell us a bit of the, the story of AccuMold and, and how you guys became experts in this uh, high precision molding. Absolutely. Um, here, I'll start to share my screen here as I uh, kind of jump into the conversation. And uh, Acumult's been around for oh, a little over 35 years and began uh, in, in a couple of toolmakers that started the company when, uh, in, you know, that <laughs> the Motorola had just come out with their gray brick cell phone, kind of the representation there on the far left. And you know, that was microelectronics in the mid 80s. You know, it only made phone calls. You know, you couldn't text with it. You know, you had you needed two hands to use it. Right. So the, the guys that started the company saw a need for smaller and smaller plastics, but didn't uh, didn't have there weren't there wasn't a, a molding press on the market that they felt was going to give them the right accuracy, the efficiencies, everything involved from the tool making and the processing side. So they basically quit their jobs, invented what we believe was the first true micromold injection molding machine. Um, and really the, the rest is history. We spent the last 35 plus years focused on dedicated to small, high precision microplastics. And, and I'll define that a little bit more um, as we kind of go on with the conversation. But really it was the start of our journey in enabling and helping customers, what we like to say is do more in the same space or more and less. And your, your hearing aid uh, example is, is very, you know, apropos in terms of um, how we help that industry and other industries um, miniaturize or, again, do more in the same space. You know, for example, when you think about today's modern hearing aids, they do more than just amplify sound. Um, they also have higher fidelities and are after, um, you know, better representation. And so that's a combination of the electronics, the acoustics, the form factors and, and all that that goes together. And then you have the energy storage, uh, always chasing longer battery lives um, or being able to put bigger batteries in smaller spaces. Right. And so. All of that starts to put pressure on the form factors that typically, you know, the housings, the connectors and the, and the places that just basically um, held it all together. Um, was, was, so what that has done, I think, in not only the hearing industry, but a lot of consumer electronics, a lot of medical device, is it starts to put pressure on supply chain that it didn't, um, didn't exist before. Um, contract manufacturers trying to find those critical components that now are beyond their, their typical injection molding experience. And that's um, small features, uh, fine detail and, you know, thin wall and all sorts of kind of push the limit um, um, form factors when it comes to molding. So 
what you what you ultimately you know again end up with is all right you you want to do more in this same space or more and less you're starting to push on the housings and the and the and the other uh, pieces of that and now it's starting to collide and you're trying to figure out okay how do we put this all together and that's really where Acubold comes into um, the picture and um, Oops, if I'm gonna go went a little too far ahead. Um, and that's really where the conversation for us starts to begin. I, I was at a trade show, <laughs> it seemed like yesterday, but it's you know a couple of years ago now. And I, I was actually a, coincidentally a, a wearables conference that I was at, and I was oh, I overheard a conversation that was happening in front of me about someone who had come up with a design, they were working with a contract manufacturer, and they were frustrated because they didn't believe they could get done what they thought they could get done. And I'm over in the kind of corner raising my hand saying, oh no, come over here, let me talk to you. Because uh, what what I what what you've said so far sounds you know plausible or doable, but what what has happened and and when it comes to miniaturization and you're used to a supply chain and again maybe that supply chain doesn't have that skill set or that experience and they're going to tell you no that's not possible, mm-hmm. or maybe they just don't want to add in a third party kind of niche player to the equation or whatnot and so you can hit these roadblocks uh, when it comes to innovation and so I've spent you know the last. 15, 16 years at Acumold trying to tell this story about here are the, here are some capabilities. Um, just a little bit of show and tell about what you can do with microplastics so that your innovation isn't stifled by maybe what you don't know or aren't familiar with or what your contract manufacturer or your own um, internal manufacturing might not be familiar with. And so we have this pathway to innovation, which looks sunny and bright, but you kind of keep running into these uh, uh, roadblocks around the corner. And, you know, micromolding is one of those things that potentially can, uh, again, remove some of those challenges uh, potentially. And so when we look at that challenge, it's kind of what I was saying before, it's like uh, uh, the idea of trying to get more in the same space or more and less and over um, stuffing a, a, a suitcase uh, is that's the same idea, you know, more electronics, uh, more functionality, higher value, all the things that innovators are trying to do in their, in, in their devices um, and, and then make them smaller on on top of that. And sometimes this is how I think some of our customers feel when they're trying to approach any uh, project and, and design. And so one of those components that that is enabling miniaturization is micromolding. And, and that, that really kind of comes uh, down to, you know, well, what is it then? Um, how do you define micromolding? Um, there really isn't a textbook definition uh, that, that says this is what it is. Um, it is injection molding. So from, from a general standpoint, if you're familiar with any kind of molding, it is still an open and closed mold. You still have to be able to get the material into the cavity and, and all that. Um, but when you, when you start pushing the limits, we kind of define micromolding in one of three, three ways. Micro in size, Certainly, you know, micro and features. Uh, sometimes you have larger parts, but, um, you know, micro optics for a, a fiber optic connector has 250 micron diameter A-sphere lenses. You know, very small features could be on a slightly larger part. Um, we've done some diagnostic um, cartridge work for a, a medical device company. It, it's a, maybe it's five, six centimeters in length, but it has microfluidic channels that are only a hundred microns wide. And so, you know, you're, you're combining large molding, but you have these micro features to it. And then it's micro intolerances. A lot of the, uh, in fact, most of the product that we mold for our customers are critical components. And then you're dealing with sometimes just a few microns in, in tolerance. Um, for example, that fiber optic connector I mentioned before, probably one of the more uh, complex type of molding that we do with those small features. And then sometimes we're dealing with uh, plus or minus one or two microns um, in positional tolerance on some of those lenses. So you, again, you're mixing micro size, micro features, micro tolerances. In some cases, a lot of cases, it's all three of those things. But usually there's, there's a, there's a uh, critical nature to the component and you're already struggling with your supply chain. They're, they're either telling you no or they're struggling to produce it because it is too small 
um, the tolerances are too tight for what they're used to doing or the features are too small or what have you. And so it's really when you start hitting those uh, um, roadblocks, when uh, a process like micromolding really can take advantage. Um, you know, we've, we've been fortunate to, to supply to some of the um, coolest companies around. I wish, you know, I could say they're, they're definitely, um, you know, companies that, um, uh, in a lot of the spaces that you and I would know, um, and they're looking to figure out how to bring more value to their customers and miniaturization, um, as you know, uh, continues to be one of those drivers. And, um, it's really kind of helped, uh, micromolding has really helped enable that. So maybe you're gonna, maybe you're gonna get into this, but is this, where it's kind of a holistic solution where you're not only looking at the, 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 the metal tool and then maybe different materials even within that, that metal tool, but also like uh, how you manage the thermal control for the flow of the resin. And then even do you spend a lot of time partnering with the resin suppliers to, to take things further and further in terms of what's yeah, possible? Those are great questions. And in fact, that is a great lead into this kind of part of the conversation. Um, you know, uh, people ask all the time, is it, the, is it, there, is there a special molding machine? Is there a special technique? What's different about micromolding? And, and the general answer is, yeah, you know, it's, I usually kind of liken it to it's, it's all appropriate sized. Um, you know, you don't want to make tiny parts on a 1500 ton press machine, right? It's, you got to find those balances for the number of parts, the cavitation, the accuracies, the, the all the things that you're mixing together. So there are a lot of, you know, good micromolding machines on the market today that can be appropriate sized. But what we've really come to find over our 35 years of experience, it's kind of like buying a Steinway piano. If you don't have the virtuoso to go with it, it's just a piece of furniture, right? So the tool making, the processing, all of that goes hand in hand and trying to understand exactly what you were talking about, how to get the material safely, correctly to the cavity uh, time and time again with the same precision to have those micron uh, tolerance outputs um, and to fill the cavity the way it's supposed to. Um, I, I, I think I have a slide here coming up that will kind of help talk about the material piece of it uh, more specifically. But when it comes to, uh, you know, it is still an injection molding process and there are still standard guidelines and people ask all the time, well, how do I design for micromolding then? And, you know, in a general sense, it's still the same way you would uh, design for any injection mold. Again, you still have to have a way to open and close the mold. You still have to have a way to eject the part. You still have to have a way to get the material to the cavity. So all those pieces uh, kind of uh, definitely play into it. But then you're starting to talk about, well, how small can the gate be or what materials uh, and how does the material play into that equation? Um, some people think, well, you don't need a gate just because it's really tiny. Like the example I have on the screen here, um, the gate is uh, 300 microns in diameter. Uh, if it had to become a feature and we had to figure out how to build the tools, that complete part could be made and give it the geometry that it needs. It's only 800 microns long, um, and yet it's got a lot of dimension to it. So those types of decisions really become very important. And I used to call it kind of conversation-based micromolding. You can't just throw it at over the wall and say, here, quote this. There's a lot of yeah. back and forth, the design for micromolding that we was, talk about, yeah. I was gonna say that some of these guys lines, they, they really must be shared with your customer. Because they have to know how these uh, mo these smaller components will fit into their overall device. Well, and, um, and, and if they don't understand where you're going to go with it, then uh, you guys can't cooperate right. very well. No, right? that's exactly right. And that's kind of where, where we, we, we really say start with your ideal. I had one design engineer tell me everything that he designs is as big as his monitor. You know, and then all of a sudden you start to actually you see the actual sizes and, you know, it's only 800 microns long. Then you start having a different conversation about it. Um, but what's so difficult about just saying here's some guidelines is the um, depending upon the geometry and the material selection and the tolerances, um, any one of those things can make or break the project success. And so we're constantly um, we're encouraging our customers, okay, start with that ideal. What do you think you need in order for your project to be successful? And then we can kind of go from there in terms of 
what is possible, what might be possible, or if you kind of change it. And so there's some basic guidelines, but ultimately it has to be a conversation with your, you know, molding partner to really kind of dial that in. And, uh, you know, sometimes again, we're at a trade show and, and someone will come up and say, oh, that's interesting. I'm working on something. I says, well, let us uh, have, a, have a look at it. And like, oh, we're not ready yet. And we're like, no, 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 time out. That's exactly when we want to get involved before you kind of settle in on what you think you need or what you might have been told is possible. Um, let's start with what the, that, that kind of ideal state and work our way from there before you, you know, maybe design out uh, something that you, you know, potentially could uh, want or need. And, and, and okay. the, I think one of the things that tells the biggest picture is a case study that we did a couple of years ago to really demonstrate how the material selection and the features uh, that you're looking for go hand in hand. Um, you know, we tried to put ourselves in the design engineer's shoes to say, okay, um, here's this geometry I want. How do I match up this uh, with the material that I'm looking that that I need? And you know, oftentimes you're picking materials because of biocompatibility or um, uh, the environment it's got to survive or heat deflection or strength or flexibility or all of the above. And so you're, you're looking at data sheets and you're trying to pick out, okay, what matches the, the component that I'm looking for? And you go to, you know, like this, the, the amber yellow color part there on the right um, is an Altem PEI material, very common um, they like to use it a lot um, in uh, microelectronic applications, especially fiber optic connectors, because it's got a low CTE um, and uh, high heat deflection. But it also pushes like cement. And you can see the gate recommendation compared to that little tiny part there. And if you're trying to match that up as a design engineer, you might say, well, there's nothing I can do here. So you asked the mentioned earlier about partnering with resin suppliers. That's something that we've uh, had have done for years and years and years, um, just because we know the relationship between the material and the feature performance is going to be so connected. Um, you know, in fact, some of the resin suppliers will say, you know, go try that company in Iowa. We're not sure if this part will fill. Um, you know, they've been able to do mm -hmm. some pretty cool things with our materials. And so this, as we built this case study, we looked at this kind of extreme thin wall study um, and we sent it out to our resin suppliers like a, any design engineer would and said, okay, what materials do you have that you would recommend to make this part? And pretty much all of them said none. They didn't have any materials that they believed would uh, fill this part out. A couple of them said, well, maybe mold it thicker and grind it down or maybe stair step it down and try to be helpful and come up with some, some uh, uh, ideas. You know, we knew they all wouldn't run. Um, we chose kind of the 11 most common materials that we see every day. We knew they wouldn't run, but yeah. we did know a few of them would. And this is really where the conversation, um, where the rubber meets the road when it comes to design for micromolding. And I, I think just to interject from like a very layman point of view, that's the previous slide was a, an excellent slide for people just to know what all those acronyms <laughs> that uh, plastic injection engineers like, oh, we're using PEAK, we're using POM yeah. or whatever. This is an excellent slide for people watching if they want to know what all those acronyms Just don't mean. ask me to pronounce them. I, I get a couple of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the last okay. I looked, there were over, over 80,000 uh, thermoplastic grades of material that you can choose from for injection molding. And, you know, some of them are just slight variations of, of some of these. These are 11 of the most common that we see. And then we even had uh, a couple of them that were filled materials. Um, so here in this slide, you can see the, you know, kind of the output for the materials there ran the full 42 to one aspect ratio, but then you can see the variety of responses uh, up and down the line here. Um, the nylon there in the middle, uh, the 18 to one, you can kind of see the glass shards. So that was a glass filled nylon, um, but the LCP up at the top in the middle, that was also a 30% glass filled material. So there are ways to get the materials that you need to the right places. Um, but, you know, it's not a guarantee, uh, you know, peak, uh, as we talk about that, <clears throat> it's not to say that three to one is the maximum uh, aspect ratio when it comes to peak, but in this particular situation, when a customer brings us a model and they say, can you make this? Our, our, our engineering team first looks, okay, is it in an, an injection moldable shape? 
Can the, can the mold open and close with the shape? And the second question is always, well, what's the material? Because we know in our minds with our experience, it's like, okay, that material is not going to match that shape or that material is going to match that shape. And so if we had gotten this model in and they wanted peak, our team would have said, yeah, no, it's not going to not not really going to be viable. If they said LCP, yep, no problem. It's one of the uh, best materials for high aspect or thin wall applications. And so that material selection piece is so, so important because of all of the things that go into it. You know, again, if you're thinking about in the audio realm, you're dealing with, uh, you know, what does the acoustic of that material do for the sound? If you're developing headphones or hearing aids or other things that have to work with it, you know, um, you, you've got other properties that you're dealing with that the material bring to the table. And then you're trying to match that with the geometry. And at the micro level, that's that can be a complex, uh, difficult thing to, to navigate sometimes. And so this slide here really kind of demonstrates, I think, the difficulty and the complexity of it. But it also demonstrates the possibilities of it and what we when, why we like to show that don't just stop at the first no. In fact, there's a major, um, you know, Fortune 50 company out there, Consumer Electronics. I, I've once heard that their rule is as designers and engineers is they don't take no until they know no is the answer. And so you're, you're looking at, you know, pushing your suppliers, pushing your supply chain, pushing your own company sometimes in order to find out is no the answer or is it just a different path? And then if that path then be, is viable, does that bring you the value the, the project that the, uh, of the project that you're trying to get done? Does it give you the competitive advantage that you're after or the, you know, that next breakthrough um, and ha just having to push through on that? And sometimes that's exploring, you know, uh, services like micro injection molding that you may or may not be familiar with. Now, is, is, is the core of your, the business, is, is there IP related to what you guys do or expertise or a combination of those two? For us, it's a combination. Um, the original micromolding uh, setup that we built 35 years plus ago, um, you know, we're on a multiple generations of that. And that's something we kind of keep close to our vest um, as our way of, of you know, uh, processing and building tools and, and molding the parts. Um, but then it really is goes hand in hand with that experience that we have. Um, you know, we have about, I want to say 90 or so in our engineering team. And most of those are in the tool room and many of them have been with us for a couple decades or more. And so, uh, you know, we're passing that down to our next generation of tool makers. Um, and it's really been about for us, the experience and how to approach micro molding, to get the results that our customers are after. And again, it's the, there's no textbook that just says, do this, do this, do this. It's it's trying to you know mm -hmm. piece together that experience. Uh, again, there are, are micro molding presses on the market today that do a, a fine job, um, but we believe that it, it is that combination between the uh, the right size machine with, uh, with the experience that goes with it. I just have a couple more slides to really kind of um, show some some of the capabilities from an example standpoint um, that, you know, sometimes can spark the creativity or kind of give some perspective of things that you might be thinking about. Um, again, this is uh, this is an internal chassis for a hearing aid. Um, it's one of my favorite parts. Um, and if you know anything about molding, um, you might recognize the complexity of something like this with slides and core pulls coming from just about every direction. And you got these thick to thin to thick to thin transitions, which a lot of times, you know, you know, the rules say, you know, always go from thick to thin and, you know, don't go back again. Um, but sometimes the situation says, no, it would be ideal if we could. And you have to figure out how to build the tool for that. And then you also have three discrete inserts going on here. And so um, one of the probably the most overlooked opportunities when it comes to miniaturization is combination parts, figuring out how to put two parts together that might have been one. And sometimes there are two different plastics, but maybe it doesn't really matter that they could both be the same plastic, um, provide you the functionality that you're looking for. And then all of a sudden you have one part. In this case, these were multiple parts that were assembled. And the customer was looking to, uh, to figure out how to do more um, in that open cavity. Uh, again, it was back to putting another circuit board or more electronic 
electronics in there for uh, adding more um, functionality to their hearing aid. And what that will combine, combining the two parts together, then allow them to share wall thickness between what would have been thicker two parts stacked together. Now they're sharing one thin wall and it gave them just that much more room on the inside in order to add that you know uh, extra component or whatever they were looking for. So that combination piece, whether it's combining parts into one part or over molding or insert molding on other components um, in order to gain this, this is, a, yes, this is a very complex part, but in the end, it saved them assembly and gave them more functionality. And so, you know, it was worth the effort to figure out how to do something like this, um, you know, uh, when it came down to it. And, and so for us, it's just a really good example of, um, you know, miniaturization. Well, okay, this is a big part. It's a, an inch and a half long, but yet it's got all these micro features to it and the complexity to it um, and the, the metal overmolding that's going on there as well. And so go ahead, so Dave. Would, would, yeah. Would this also like include like some, like I've, I've heard of in mold laminations and stuff like that. And a lot of people doing um, insertion of the printed antenna on the inside walls of some of these devices, are you able to do that at this micro yes, scale? Yes, um, that's yeah, exactly. The there's really two basic rules when it comes to that. You can overmold anything that can a. You can hold it. You got to figure out a way to hold it in the mold so it stays where it, where where it needs to be. And second, it has to survive the temperatures and pressures of molding, which can be extreme. So not everything you know ma matches that. Um, we often get asked, hey, can you overmold electronics? Like, well, yes, but they won't survive, um, you know, at least in a lot of cases. And so, you know, you're, you're figuring out those types of things. Uh, uh, there is a process called uh, LDS or 3D MID, um, which is uh, laser selective plating. Um, basically, you um, strike the plastic with the laser wherever the laser hits the plating sticks. And that's allowed, uh, again, another complementary technology for miniaturization um, for you to do SMT compatible traces on the plastic. So then all of a sudden your housing becomes your circuit board uh, and allows you to do things again that open up creativity and space and opportunity. And um, you just have to know that it's available. Um, you mentioned antennas. Uh, I think most of today's cell phone antennas are built using that kind of technology um, because the frame is the antenna uh, because they just make it out of plastic and then plate it selectively. Um, very cool technology. Are those, uh, are those like, I think additive or subtractives, like sometimes they'll flood coat uh, a metal surface and then they'll laser etch away or is it also you're telling me that they'll use laser kind of activation so that the plating only bonds to the the, the traces that you've defined right with the this laser. particular process is the second what you just described um there's a okay. german company called lpkf um they're one of the, they're the leader as far as i'm concerned in in terms of the experience with this technology they're a laser company um but they've developed the material additive that activates when the laser strikes the plastic and then it only sticks on those traces and wide variety of materials available and um it's been around for a long time and i think companies as they've uh, developed more and more ways to utilize it or understand how to take advantage of it that it's it's really kind of growing in popularity um, we like to talk about it because it's very, very complementary to, to uh, miniaturization. Mm -hmm. Automotive have been using it for a long time in big, large parts. Um, you know, again, it doesn't really care about the size, but if you're looking to shrink um, components and figuring out how to combine things together to save in space and, and whatnot, that's uh, another way to do it. So it, it's that combination thinking. How, do, how could I combine a few things together, maybe make one... Uh, complex part, but then in the end, ultimately add that component and value uh, to your component. Okay. Um, last slide here I have is just, you know, basically just kind of a few examples. I, that small part that's in the middle was uh, the one I showed earlier. It's 800 microns long. Uh, the part on the right is an interesting one. It's a, it's a filter, uh, again, for the hearing aid market. You know, everything that I show here, we've gotten permission to show um, their legacy parts and the hearing aid market is 
um, you know, they're very generous once it hits the market, they let us show it. And, and they're also very representative of a lot of the capabilities of micromolding. This is a case, again, a combination. The customer had developed their own special coating for wax mitigation and wanted to create these little filters. Um, and we figured out a way to articulate a fabric through a multi-cavity micromold uh, and produce these little uh, wax guards, um, as they were called. We ended up making a second generation smaller version, and then we've made all plastic versions of them as well with my, uh, tiny micro through holes. And so again, complex little part, but that one um, is dealing with like a fabric overmold. And then the parts on the left, I kind of alluded to this earlier, and is some micro optics. Um, and the reason why I like to separate those out is because of not only these small parts with small features and tight tolerances, micro optics takes that to an extreme. You think about surface finish and material clarity and the tolerances are even uh, even tighter than most. Uh, it, uh, I use, usually tease that optical engineers like plus or minus zero, um, but uh, we're, we're usually able to achieve in a lot of cases, uh, you know, a few microns uh, here or there and depending upon the, the, the nature of the product. But Micro optics are, are, are a growing uh, interest because of um, the sensor market. And you think about wearables and uh, other consumer electronics. I mean, there's, there, there's hardly anything you can't buy today that doesn't see the world somehow. You know, it tells you're in the room. It tells you, you know, if you're moving or not moving, you know, all those, even your coffee maker can say hello to you probably these days, you know. And that all comes through uh, micro technology and micro sensors. And so, the drive to, um, you know, make little tiny optics and little uh, uh, sensor housings um, and to do that in a way that they're all surface mount compatible. Uh, that's probably one of the grow fastest growing um, trends that we see in the micro injection molding realm um, because of the demand in the marketplace is, is just growing exponential when it comes to micro sensors. Okay. So in the end, to maybe end on a cliche, um, you know, we, we, back to that, start with the ideal. It's, it's start with what you think you need in your design and, um, and, and continue to push that until you find that no is the answer. And so it just comes down to that blue sky thinking when it comes to, you know, what is innovation? Innovation means it's something you haven't done before and then potentially something that nobody has done before. For um, and to try to figure out how to do that and uh, to to decide whether or not that's your next breakthrough to you know make your company successful um, sometimes really requires pushing beyond the the supply chain that you know today and exploring some potential others. Again, micromolding is just one of those things. Uh, I mentioned LDS, uh, laser direct structuring, it's called, uh, is another one of those things that might uh, be of, of interest. But there are other technologies out there. And I think, you know, those of you that are watching this right now, you're already in that mindset to explore new things, right? Um, uh, because, you know, that's what that you guys are all about is, is trying to discover what's out there in the world to help us uh, you, you make these breakthroughs. And so, you know, it might be something you have to encourage your colleagues with. Hey, you know, or, or your, your purchasing team. Well, we don't have them as a supplier. We're trying to reduce our supply chain. We're not trying to add to our supply chain, right? All the sorts of pushback that you might get when you're trying to design something um, and uh, you're just figuring out how you can navigate that. And, you know, again, something like uh, AccuMold or uh, the MicroMolder um, can be the key to uh, enabling some of those uh, next generation product. And so, you know, we, we see a wide variety of applications. Um, almost all of them are electronics. Uh, the growth in wearables and hearables and um, consumer electronics is um, kind of, again, fast paced um, because of the demand, consumer demand and, and the functionality that uh, you know, people are looking. And I'd say right, right behind that is uh, medical device. Um, they often mimic and follow consumer electronics. Um, and you think about, you know, what's on the market today for uh, diabetics, blood glucose monitoring and, and insulin pumps and the technology that's all coming um, on the heels of wearables and, and micro technology and, and things like micro molding. So, uh, it, you know, it's uh, for us, we, I love it. We enjoy it because we get to see some next generation um, technology as it's being developed um, and be a part of that 
you know, kind of supply chain, if you will. Um, and then speaking of supply chain, uh, you mentioned earlier, we're in Iowa, um, right in the middle of the country. Uh, and I always tease, don't worry if you don't know where it's at. Most Americans don't know where it's at. <laughs> no, <You're> just <laughs> west of Chicago, south of Minneapolis, in the heart of the Midwest. Uh, it's, it's, it's where the company was kind of born and raised and where we've been for the last 30 plus years. And, um, you know, we like to say we're huge in micro, a little, a little over 12,000 square feet or square meters in uh, space. Um, and uh, 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 about 350 people, all dedicated to micromoving. So it's 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 a lot of fun. Uh, we 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 have a we have a great company and uh, do a lot of exciting things. So everything is is designed and manufactured in Iowa. There's no you don't sell the tools off to others or, or none of that type of business? Yes, that's a, that's a fantastic question. Um, no, for us, it's captive business, meaning we are, we're, a, we're a tool shop, but it's really for production. And they go hand in hand. You need to have them uh, together to get the, um, the accuracies and you know, the, the critical nature of those components. It would be very difficult to not have our tool shop and our, our molding shop in the same facility. Again, that's a model that is uh, very, very common in a lot of ways for uh, maybe traditional molding, but for us, uh, it's all done right there in Iowa, in, in Ankeny, just uh, north of Des Moines. Um, but the beauty of Micro is they ship all over the world quite easily. Uh, in fact, right. <laughs> we get calls from logistic companies wanting to know if they, you know, need to bring us semis. And it's like, no, just DHL. You know, we got a hundred thousand that go in a, a little container. <laughs> you know, so it, it definitely uh, makes it easy for logistics because you know we ship to Asia and Europe and all over the U.S. every day. Is the okay. um, uh, yeah, Simon, go ahead. Uh, the parts that you're making, are you getting down to the tolerances of CNC and EDM stuff? Or is that, does that come into so, the picture too? Well, so from a tooling perspective, uh, yeah, we, our tool shop uses, uh, you know, EDM and CNC type equipment, and we're often, you know, looking to finesse that. So when you're building a, a tool, a mold for an injection mold, you know, it's we 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 sometimes will have ten or fifteen different specialists in the tool room working on one component or another. Specialists on the wire, specialists um, on the downsinker, specialists on you know the 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 CNC machining. In the end, they all got to fit perfectly together so mm -hmm. that you know the, the 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 mold comes together. The the cavity is exactly the way the customers need it, built with the right specifications for the material that we're going to process. So yeah, it's quite the orchestration of um, machining and the way we approach our tool building to come together to really hit those uh, micron tolerances. When it comes to uh, part design, uh, a lot are your customers generally highly skilled in that, or do you end up having to do kind of uh, help them through some of the part design aspects. Yeah, so, right. No, that's, uh, it, most of our customers have their, their general part design, but not most of them are not experts on micro-molding. And so it, we really uh, go through this, what we call the design for micro-molding phase. Um, you know, they've got, like I said, their ideal shape together. Um, maybe they have a lot of experience with injection molding in general, but maybe not where they can push the limits or what materials. And so there is a lot of that uh, kind of design for micro-molding conversations that happen at the front end of a project. And, and you know, that's a really important point, Simon, because, you know, it's one thing if you're, okay, you're R&D, you're just trying to make one thing to see if it works. Yeah, there's that level. You need that piece of it. But then you also eventually need to know, well, can you make 100 million of them at the same level? And so we like to start the conversations knowing, well, where do you ultimately think you need to go and to, to help you be successful, not just with one, but with 100 million, right? And so that conversation gets into quality. How are you going to measure the parts? What is, where are they going to be shipped? How are they going to be shipped? You know, if you think about micro lenses going on halfway around the world, you don't want them all scratched up, you know, bungled up in a big bulk, right? All of those little things we help our customers think through if they don't have that experience already. So um, yeah, there's definitely a learning curve to it. And um, really, I think our best product isn't really the parts themselves. That's the output of great collaboration between our company and our customers and their engineers working together to make the most robust project that they, you know, that they can. 
And how about uh, simulation versus experience in terms of tool design? So, you know, there's certainly flow analysis is is been around for a long time. In fact, I just had this conversation the other day. If we relied on flow analysis um, to say whether or not we could make parts, we would we would have never been in business. Um, it, it said we couldn't make parts that we've been making for 30 years. Now, that being said, it's come a long way in the last few years as they've gotten better at simulating um, what these materials are going to do in micro spaces. But um, we still will will do simulations is, you know, on the larger parts, it certainly has a little bit higher accuracy for us. But even on the smaller parts, it can sometimes give us uh, a few clues or give us our, our customers a few clues because sometimes knit lines and flow patterns will matter even at the micro level. And if we can help our customers say, no, if you can gate over here, then you're going to have this over there. And, this, and it's out of the functionality path that you're looking for. You know, again, those do that does come into play, but you kind of have to know what you're looking at and when it's telling you uh, what's possible or when it's telling you it's not possible. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and a lot of the design work that I deal with, uh, people don't give any thought to things like you mentioned, uh, gate position, especially, but I suppose, I suppose in a micro part, it's a critical factor. Well, again, like sometimes we get uh, customers that bring us apart and they haven't, they haven't Put, a, put it anywhere. And it was like, okay, where, do, where can we gate? And they're like, oh, you still need a gate? Yeah, we still need a gate. Um, and then it's that that deciding factor, okay, that's which surface, what's critical. Um, and, and, and we have to sometimes be really creative about that because you don't have a lot of surface area. So sometimes there's really few choices to even work with. So then like the one part I showed earlier, you have to maybe make it a feature that you can work with in order to, you know, kind of combine, you know, what it physically needs to be molded, but also physically needs to be a, a you know, a functional part for you. In those uh, list of materials, I didn't. I saw a suspiciously absent ABS. Do you not deal with ABS very much? No, uh, we do. It just didn't make that particular list. Um, in fact, we've taken that eleven and we've run lots of other materials like ABS or PBAX or some other softer uh, uh, thermoplastics TPU materials. Because sometimes a customer will say, "Hey, I'd like to use this material." We can run it in that thin wall test mode uh, mold and say, "Okay, it, it'll start to give us a clue whether or not." we think it's going to work for this situation or another so no we do process quite a bit of abs just didn't happen to make that list yep and do uh, is the tool designed for one specific material or you have a limited range you can choose so yes yeah, so the shrink rate uh of the materials are all different um and yes you could run the, any material in any mold but it's not necessarily going to have the same you know end result uh, because the shrink rate still, again, matters when you think about that 800 micron long uh, part and you have a shrink rate of one or two percent. Uh, well, that's a lot when you're talking under a millimeter uh, in terms of the size. Um, so you, you do have to build the tool to the material selection when you're looking for micron tolerances. Um, if you don't have micron tolerances, that's less of, a, uh, of an issue, but they will be different. Um, so sometimes a customer will come to us, they don't know exactly what material they want, or they want to start with this material. So we'll have to either build the tool so we can accommodate for that, start with what's uh, what we call steel safe, and then work our way from there. Um, but sometimes that's not possible. And so we'll maybe do multiple cavities in some kind of prototype mold base in order for them to really prove out what's possible with with each material they're looking for. So again, material selection is, is just could not stress how important that is in, in the early discussions when it comes to micro parts. And uh, some of those parts uh, look pretty tiny. Uh, is there a lot of pan processing to separate the parts or do you ship it with the uh, sprue and everything attached? Yeah, for the most part, no, there's there's no labor in uh, secondary ops when it comes to, we want them clean out of the mold and um, building the mold so it'll do that. Uh, some parts do have uh, automation uh, and we'll do, We'll, we'll, we'll do some sub-assembly work. Um, we don't really consider ourselves a full contract manufacturer, though we do some light sub-assembly. And sometimes that might include a secondary op um, for one particular reason. But I want to say 99% of the parts come out of the mold ready to go um, unless the customer has specified, no, I want it left on the runner because they need it 
to handle it because the uh, part is so small. So those are done by design um, and uh, do happen on occasion. Um, just so they they have something, some way to you know manipulate it themselves. Yeah, I see. So the tool is designed that that's generally broken off when the tool opens and then it just pops the part out into a bucket into a tray. Right. Right. Yeah. Either either um, collected by robots uh, individually or they're popped out and drop into a tray or conveyor or bucket, you know, again, depending upon the, the nature of the part. But uh, you st you st part handling is definitely an interesting part of micromolding when you're dealing with such small parts and small, uh, small surface areas. And are you generally uh, in a tool where you're injecting multiple parts? Um, so, yes. Uh, these days, definitely higher cavitation is of higher interest, especially in the consumer electronics space. Um, but when you're talking about high precision components, um, cavity cavity variation can be an issue. And so lower cavitation tends to be better, um, but it all comes down to how many parts do you need, you know, the efficiencies and the costs that go into all of that. Um, and so that's, again, a conversation that happens up front. Sometimes it's better to build two systems with smaller cavitations than to try to put it all into one again because you're dealing with all the material management and getting them to tiny spaces you know at the same rate and the same levels the same accuracies um, definitely can be complex complex and so for us a large micro mold uh, would be like a 16 cavity would be high cavitation for micro molding you know if you're talking about plastic spoons and you're in some 128 cavity mold that I could walk into you know that's a different story <laughs> but for us uh, you know it's definitely a lower cavitation, um, again, depending upon the need. Um, uh, do you th think it's, uh, you're in sort of a, a protected niche, let's say, in some sense? Uh, I want to get to, do you think that the Chinese tool manufacturers have dominated so greatly because they're local to all the manufacturing? Um, to a certain point, but we ship to China every day. Um, you know, we're shipping to CMs and and uh, the manufacturing divisions of a lot of major European and U.S. customers because they don't have that that level of molding. Um, you know, in China, and again, there's some gray area. What again? What is exactly micro molding? And there are some fantastic molders. Um, just in well, actually, both of your neck next to your woods. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we're familiar with. Uh, a lot of really good toolmakers and molders. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, there's a certain level that the, the locality is, is beneficial, but again, because they're micro parts, logistics really is less uh, of a challenge. And then we're dealing with the design teams that are either in California or Germany, you know, uh, and so they're used to just dealing with, um, you know, multinational kind of, uh, um, set up. And so whether or not their parts are getting made in Iowa or in Asia, as long as they all come together in, you know, the, the right way, uh, it seems to be um, very doable. Yeah, yeah, excellent. And in terms of quality control, how do you uh, how do you deal with that? Do you guys have, uh, you know, optical measurement machines and things like that? Yep, yep. Um, and yeah, of course. Uh, most of our machines are uh, OGP. Um, they're, we're doing optical and laser scanning on some of them. Uh, you know, uh, high high power magnification, of course, to be able to to measure down to you know a few microns. But then we also have a couple of white light interferometers that we will also use, um, especially on components, the the optical components for surface profiles and some of those extremely small features or tight tolerances. So we yeah, you have to have the right tools, of course. And then our customers also need to have some way to correlate as well. And so sometimes we'll work with them uh, to make sure that their incoming inspection also matches. So when we know what a micron is, we all agree where it starts and where it stops. So <laughs> Excellent. It's mostly going into quite high value products, is it? Your, your parts? Uh, there's definitely, I would say, yeah, there's, that's probably the higher percentage though um, uh, over the last five to seven years or so, the demand in the consumer space for the millions of months that we have on some projects 
um, is definitely uh, in that commodity space, but we're making that one critical component or two critical components that go together. Um, and you know, again, trying to find that. So there is there is efficiency to do it. There is a competitiveness that can does make sense. Um, but again, you're trying to look at look at it in, in in the total context of your you know supply chain and what you need to accomplish. So that was actually leading to my next one. You're doing you're doing parts at a million a month level. Uh, in some cases, yes. Um, you know, it's not everything. Your hearing aids aren't that high a volume, but uh, you think about um, sensors or some other medical components that have extreme volumes to them. Yeah. Wow. So is that machines running? And, sorry, uh, is that what, machines running twenty four hours a day? Yeah. Or well, pretty much. I mean, we operate on a twenty four seven basis, um, and we have um, over two hundred presses in our facility, and, and and the microsystems we build on demand. So if we need more, we make more. Mm. Um, we standardize. You know, I didn't really kind of get into the types of machines we have because we also do some what we call small molding. Um, up to about five centimeters, six centimeters or so. Um, and again, we usually have micro features or something to it. So we do have access to a wide variety of um, molding machines and um, uh, capacity for high volume, for sure. Uh, and and do some of these sub-assemblies, uh, are they like plastic sub-assemblies that might go into a larger where there's another tooling partner in Asia or yeah. in Europe somewhere and you guys make this... The, the sweet exactly. stuff and then you have to have a, an FAE in China or in Germany to help make sure it fits properly. Yeah, almost everything we build is component level um, and it's sub-assemblies. It's, you know, again, it's it, a lot of it's plastic uh, sub-assemblies, two components snapped or three uh, components snapped together or sonically welded. But again, we have a few other components where we're doing a few more, more traditional assembly, but it's still component level. We're not making finished goods where we are. Um, we're not doing die attach and right. wire bonding and those types of things. And um, you know, we we leave that to the experts that that do know that well and and uh, you know provide what we can uh, to 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 those types of assemblies. Okay. All right. So, uh, uh, how do people get a hold of you? Is there uh, they find you on LinkedIn, on Twitter? What's <laughs> yeah, your favorite? Yeah, no, certainly I'm on LinkedIn. Um, but Accumold, A-C-C-U dash M-O-L-D. Um, for those of you with maybe an uh -huh. English spin, there's no U in that one. Uh, <laughs> uh, A-C-C-U dash M-O-L-D dot com. Uh, Right. Uh, that's the, probably the easiest way where you can learn a little bit more about us, uh, and, you know, check out some more examples and capabilities. And certainly there's contact details there. I'd love to hear from anybody that's interested in talking more about micro injection molding and its capabilities. We do tech days, you know, we do a version of this presentation that goes a little bit into more in depth on, you know, who we are and what we do and that we give to, you know, customers all over the world. Um, because of COVID, we started doing virtual tours. Um, we have, actually have a really cool virtual tour that we do uh, throughout our facility and we do it live in real time and you get to ask questions and, you know, we try to tailor it to what you might be interested in. So, um, you know, we've had to be creative too when it comes to uh, um, just sharing our story. <laughs> so. Great. Okay. So uh, Simon, thanks as always, Aaron Johnson, uh, in uh, AccuMold, it's thank Aaron. you so much for joining us. We really appreciate yeah. it. And uh, every everybody watching, you know, hit that subscribe. I hope that you enjoyed this deep dive on microplastics today. Um, so subscribe, like, share, all that good stuff. And uh, hope to see everybody next week. Have a great Thanks, day. Everyone.